My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad to have you here with us on this uh, beautiful July weekend. We are, as a church family, going through the book of Hebrews together. We've been going through the book of Hebrews together for the better part of the last year. Uh, We're going to be a few more weeks in Hebrews. We're going to have a a short little mini-series of some guest preachers coming to speak uh, for us in uh, August, and then we'll pick up Hebrews and finish it off in the fall, and excited to tell you more about kind of where we're going to be going with the preaching schedule in the weeks and months to come. With that said, we're in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 23 through 31. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. What I'd like to do is just read these verses and pray and then spend some time unpacking them together. So read along with me if you would. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses... When he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these pictures of faith in action. Um, God, we know that faith begins in our hearts. It's a gift that you give to us in our hearts and in our minds. But God, we also know that faith always has an outworking. Faith always has to be put into action. And so, God, I pray today as as we meditate on these words, as we explore uh, the various uh, people who are put before us as examples of faith, God, I pray that you would stir in us deeper faith in Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would begin to stir in us um, pictures, ideas, leadings of how you want our faith to be put into greater action. God, I ask that you would give each and every one of us a soft heart, a teachable heart, that we might be uh, changed by your word. And God, I pray for myself that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen. Friends, I want you to consider something today. I'm going to give you a bit of advice. You should get as much pleasure and wealth and power and peace and security as you possibly can. Okay? You should get, you should get as much pleasure as you could possibly get, as much wealth as you could possibly get, as much security as you could possibly get, as much comfort as you could possibly get. You should have it all. Don't settle for anything less than ultimate pleasure, ultimate prosperity, ultimate security, and ultimate peace. Now, if you're uncomfortable, it's probably because you're expecting me to say something the opposite, right? No, don't have pleasure. Don't have peace. Don't seek great wealth. Well, here's the thing. 
I don't necessarily mean it in the same way that our world means it. I don't mean it that you should seek immediate gratification, that you should seek immediate comfort and prosperity and wealth and peace and security and and pleasure. Uh, Much of what our whole world revolves around, our culture in the West in particular, is instant, immediate gratification. Get what you can get right now. See, the Bible would actually say that you were built for pleasure, that you were built for the deepest joy imaginable. The problem is, is that you and I are so prone to trade the ultimate pleasure that God has for us for cheap thrills that are here today and are gone tomorrow. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? That is, that is what we're really talking about today. This is a big idea we're going to see in this passage that, that what God offers is better than anything that the world offers us. Having faith in God often means saying no to things right now so that we can experience greater things later. Having faith in God often means saying no to things right here and now so that we can experience greater things later. We actually know this is is true on a human level, don't we? We know this is true on a human level. We think of of something like an athlete, someone who's an athlete who trains at the highest possible level. They're going to say no to themselves when they walk past the the Ben and Jerry's. I should say, they should say no to themselves when they walk past the Ben and Jerry's in the grocery store, right? They're going to deny themselves certain things so that they can uh, perform at a really high level. Uh, If any of you are into gardening, uh, I'm not, but I have heard of people who are into gardening. And one of them, uh, actually my mother-in-law is quite a a good gardener, and, and she had told me that when you first plant strawberries, the first year you get strawberries, and all the strawberry plants start to, to blossom, before they turn into strawberries, you go through and you pick all the flowers off and you throw them away. Did you know that? Because if, if your first-year plants go to fruit, then they won't put down as deep of roots. You get rid of all the fruit, then the plants focus on deeper roots, and year two, you actually have a better return on your crops. Or, or for those of you who are parents, it's like parenting. It's like really hard at first, and then later, actually, who are we kidding? It's always hard, right? <laughs> we can see these things in life where, where we say no right here and now because there's something greater to come later on. And all of those little examples in life serve as pictures of the truer and deeper reality that God shows us in his word. And so we're going to look today in this passage. It's kind of a collection of characters where we can see this theme highlighted. We're going to look at four characters or four groups. We're going to see the parents, the prince, the people, and the prostitute. And no, I'm not Baptist. It just worked out that way this week. I love it when that happens, okay? Four Ps. You can, can kind of uh, organize this passage around. The parents, the prince, the people, and the prostitute. So let's start back in verse 23 and look at the parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The author of Hebrews is taking us through kind of a a summary version of Old Testament history, a a summary of the history of the people of God. And here he arrives at the story of Moses, but before he talks about Moses, he wants to talk about Moses' parents. Those of you who are familiar with the story, you'll remember that that the, the people of Israel had moved to Egypt because Egypt was the only place where there was food and water and, and prosperity. And over the years, over several hundred years, this this small tribe of people had actually blossomed into an enormous group of people, a nation. And the the Pharaoh, 
the king over Egypt feared the people of Israel. He, he did not like the Hebrews. He didn't esteem them. He, he thought, hey, they're going to uprise. They're going to take us over. They're going to cause all sorts of problems. And so he gave a command. Do you guys remember what the command is? The destruction of the firstborn. That every firstborn male must be killed. Now, Moses' parents heard that edict. They heard that command. What was their response? The author of Hebrews summarizes it nicely. They, did, they didn't obey. They hid him for three months. Why? Number one, they saw that the child was beautiful. The word beautiful uh, in, the, in the, uh, the New Testament Greek here, referring back to the Old Testament, it, it really means that he was, he was a delight, that he was pleasing. It was a, a gift of God's grace that the parents could see that this was a, a, a little baby who was born in the image and likeness of God and that there was something just beautiful and even special and unique about him. And so the parents hid him for three months. And then it says here that they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now you have to understand something. That's pretty gutsy, isn't it? This, this people has been enslaved. This people has been made to work hard. They, they labor hard. They're, they're not loved. They're not cared for. They're not protected. They're taken advantage of, but they at least have food. They at least have protection. They at least have some peace. Egypt is the, the greatest, most powerful country in the world at this time. At least they've got that sort of thing going for them. Yeah, it's not perfect. Yeah, it's not ideal. But don't rock the boat. Stick with the status quo. Okay, the commandment comes. Everyone's got to kill the firstborn. But this family says no, and they hide their child for three months. By the way, any of you who are parents of newborns, can you imagine that? Trying to keep your child hidden? I mean, not only just the difficulty of, of a squawking baby, but just the pride and the joy and the love that you have when you, you see that brand new baby. I see, I see several families brought new, brand new babies in even just today. You want to show them off. You want to, you want to display them. That's just incredibly difficult. But here they disobey the king and they were not willing to settle for temporary peace and temporary security. They saw something that was greater. And it leads us into a, a brief discussion on the idea of civil disobedience. We have to address this. We have to address this idea of civil disobedience. And, and in the scriptures, we see a couple of different principles at play. First of all, we can see in the book of Romans chapter 13 that the Bible tells us as Christians to submit to, to obey the governing rulers and authorities. Okay? Yes, we hold to a higher law. We hold to God's law. But, but God's word is clear that we are to submit to the governing rulers and authorities. The Apostle Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, here's the reason, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Isn't that interesting? We're called upon to obey the government because all authority comes from God and the only authority that the government has has been delegated to them by God. That actually can give you great comfort, as especially as we head into an election cycle where I don't know anybody who's particularly excited about this November, okay? All authority ultimately belongs to God. He's sovereign. He's in control over all of the nations of the earth and we can trust him and we're called to obey. However, this is the second point we need to wrestle with. There are many, many Many examples of God-supported, God-approved civil disobedience. 
I could take you through dozens of examples in the scripture. I'll just mention a few. Think about the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament where uh, the wicked king Ahab and Queen Jezebel were seeking to have him put to death and he resists and he hides and he, he, he fights them. You think about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that whole scene in the, in the book of Daniel where the king builds a 90-foot tall statue of himself, very humble guy, says, bow down, worship it. And they say, no, that's ridiculous. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. And they say, we're not gonna do that. That's the dumbest idea we've ever heard. And they said, throw them in the fiery furnace. God protects them. And God puts his stamp of approval on their civil disobedience by protecting them. Same with Daniel in the lion's den. Same with uh, uh, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, when they walked through something very similar, when King Herod said to destroy all the firstborn, they hid their child, they ran, they went to Egypt. Interesting parallel there. Think about Peter and John preaching the gospel. They pull them in, they beat them. The, the, the rulers and the governors come in and say, you have to stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter and John go, yeah, that's great. Beat us some more because we're gonna just head out and keep preaching about Jesus. And God approves of this type of civil disobedience. Okay, so we have this pretty explicit passage, obey the government, and then we have all these examples of people not obeying the government, and God saying, in essence, two thumbs up. How do we deal with that tension? I think that the key is, is to be found in, in verse three when we understand God's design for government. If you read the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 7, he says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. This is how government's supposed to be. Government is supposed to say, here is good, we want to support that, here is bad, we're not going to go there. Government is supposed to reflect God's perfect law. Well, what happens when, when the, the, the rulers and the authorities of this world don't align, with God, don't align with God's law? Well, then there's actually a higher respect for the law. We actually hold to a higher law, and it's God's law. When there's a conflict between the laws of man and a conflict between the laws of God, then actually the people of God are called upon to disobey. Is that interesting? Think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the great civil rights leader in the 50s and 60s, quote where he said, an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. It's a good word. Now listen, you need to hear me clearly on this. Before you decide to start civilly disobeying laws, make sure that the law is actually in conflict with God's law and you're not just being a rebellious punk, okay? Uh, just, just... Just make sure, you know, you're driving 85 and a 35, the cop pulls you over. Hey, man, I hold to a higher lot. No, you're just a jerk and you need to get a big ticket, okay? We need to have an understanding that, that God puts rulers in place, that not every single law that is in existence is gonna be found explicitly in the scripture, that God delegates authority for those purposes. But where there is conflict, where there is repression of things that God has commanded us to do, then it's incumbent upon us to do so. Maybe you've read about in the news uh, in the last couple of weeks that Russia has actually passed a law and is trying to enforce a law that evangelizing, telling people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is now illegal outside of church services. Did you know that? And this isn't just some fringe blog or website I found on this. Major news organizations covering this. You can look it up for yourself. What if that day comes in the United States of America? I pray it doesn't, but what if that day comes? Are we willing to say, I'm, I'm going to obey God rather than man? 
Will we settle for temporary comfort, temporary security? Or will we see ourselves, as the parents of Moses did, as being covered by a greater comfort, a greater security, a greater prosperity? Moses' parents, they disobeyed the wicked laws of the king because they believed that what God had for them was better than what Pharaoh could offer them. Pharaoh could offer them peace. He could offer them prosperity. He could offer them security, but only God could offer them true peace, prosperity, and security. That's our first example. Let's look at the prince now, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Interesting phrase there, the fleeting pleasures of sin. An even more interesting phrase, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews has talked about Moses uh, quite a bit, hasn't he? If we go back into earlier chapters, we've seen a lot about Moses as the lawgiver, Moses as the leader, Moses as setting up the, the temple, or the tabernacle, I should say, and worship. Here we see a totally different portion of Moses' story. He focuses in on Moses' younger life. If you remember, uh, after three months, Moses' parents put him into a basket and floated him down the river. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, the government would be pleased about that if anybody did that today, but that's what they did. They floated him right down the river. The Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, happened to be in the river uh, taking a bath, essentially, and she found him and said, I'm going to adopt this baby. You guys remember this story. It's miraculous that, that the older sister of Moses was watching and said, oh, I can volunteer someone to, uh, to nurse him for you if you need someone to help, and went and got the baby's mom. A beautiful picture, beautiful story. So Moses, though, grows up in the palace, grows up as the prince of Egypt, grows up with access to the world's greatest military, with access to the world's uh, richest treasures, with access to some of the highest uh, advances in science and mathematics and astronomy and, and all those sorts of things. Moses literally could have had the world at his fingertips. Quite literally could have had the world at his fingertips. If, if Bill Gates walked up to you later this afternoon and said, you know, I'd like to adopt you and give you a share of my inheritance, what would your response be? Like, I'm older than you, Bill Gates. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even raise that objection. You, you'd just say, yes, please adopt me. I'll take the inheritance. It sounds wonderful. Any strings attached? Doesn't matter. I want all the money, right? This is where, where many of us live our lives. We're looking forward to those types of things. This is why we've seen uh, such a, um, a, a glut of reality TV shows and competitions. Everyone's trying to win, you know, to be the next American superstar, to be the next whatever. We all want to have that fame, fortune. We want our name up in lights. We want uh, pleasure. We want money. We want those sorts of things. But again, the story of Moses shows us that he had his eyes on the greater reward. We can see a few things that, that actually Moses said no to right here and now so he could have the greater reward. The first thing is this. He said no to pleasure as God. When I use that word God, lowercase g God, I mean something that's of utmost and ultimate importance. Something that we live our lives for. Something that drives us. Something that gets us out of bed in the morning. The Bible would refer to these types of gods as idols. 
Anything that commands your affections more than God is an idol, is, a God, is the functional God of your heart. So Moses could have had pleasure. He could have had the most beautiful women. He could have had the most glorious conquests in battle. He could have had all of the pleasures. The author of Hebrews says, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Friends, sin, let's admit it, sin is pleasurable, isn't it? Nobody sins who doesn't want to. I've actually had to say that to people in uh, various meetings. I'm meeting with somebody pastorally. I just, I can't believe I did that. I didn't even want to. I'm like, hold on, time out. You did want to. There's a part of you, yes, that doesn't want to, but there's a part of you that did want to. Nobody sins who doesn't want to. Because there's a payoff. There's pleasure. But the Bible says it's fleeting. It's joyful today. Painful tomorrow. It's sweet in the mouth The book of Proverbs would say, but then it turns to bitterness in our stomach. For the Christian to sin is to forget God's promise of ultimate pleasure. Friends, too many of us have a picture and an image of God as this curmudgeon in the sky who is anti-pleasure. And I'm delighted to tell you that nothing could be further than the truth. The the book of Psalms says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think about this. Here's a weird analogy, but it's one that comes to mind for me. God could have made everything in the whole world taste like tofu. He could have. And we would all be well, we'd probably be slimmer than we are. We'd be all, you know, we'd be healthy, we'd be nourished, we'd be, we'd be fed. But God didn't. He created things like curry, and he created things like wild Alaskan salmon. That I, who said curry? Is that an amen or was that a negative? Because we're going to have to talk afterwards, right? He, he created spices and flavors and fried chicken and pepperoni pizza, okay? Whatever, you know, whatever your particular fancy is. God made a whole world with all of these uh, tastes. Why? Is it because God was bored? No, it's because God is himself delighted and joyful and a God of pleasure. And every time you take a bite of delicious food, that is supposed to point us to the greatest pleasure in the universe, that of knowing God. Every pleasure, when you see a beautiful sunset, when you hear a beautiful piece of music, all of that is meant to point us to the delight that is ours in God. And friends, we settle for cheap substitutes far too often. Moses said no to the fleeting pleasures of sin. He said no to pleasure as God. Moses said no to money as God. In verse 26, it says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By the way, it's a very interesting phrase, a little bit of a controversial phrase, the reproach of Christ Um, it's a little bit controversial because if you'll remember the story of Moses, Jesus hadn't been born yet uh, for like many thousands of years. So how how is it that Moses is experiencing the reproach of Christ? Is this the reproach that belongs to Christ? Is it the reproach, he experienced reproach like Christ? Maybe, Maybe the author of Hebrews isn't using Christ in the formal title, but just meaning the anointed one, that God's people, he experienced the reproach with God's people. Uh, Here's the point though. Being associated with Christ, being associated with his people, often leads to reproach and to shame, doesn't it? Matthew 5, 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are you when others, when others, not if others, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Moses could have had all of the riches of Egypt, all of the treasure, all of the money that he wanted, all of the luxuries and comforts that came along with that. But he said, no, and chose rather to be associated with the shameful slaves, the people of Israel, the, the people of God. He experienced that shame and that reproach so that he could experience the later reward. Think about this. Psalm, uh, Psalm 119 talks about how the law of the Lord is perfect. The, the precepts, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, the, the psalmist just goes on and on about how good the word of God is, how good the laws of God are, how good his, his commandments, his statutes, his precepts. And then it says, more to be desired are they than gold, more than much fine gold. Now, I don't know what the price of gold is per ounce, but if somebody walked up and says, here's your choice, you get to have a Bible or you get to have this big bag of gold, which one would you be tempted to take? I'd be, I, I, can, I can get a Bible anyway. I can download it on my phone. I'll take the big bag of gold. Some of us, maybe, I don't know. The author of Psalms is saying, God's word is infinitely more valuable. Makes that, makes that bag of gold look like, you know, ashes from the bottom of your fireplace. God's word is that precious. God's word is that valuable. God's word is that delightful. Moses knew it. Moses said no to all of the riches of Egypt. He said, no, money is not my God. I'm not going to live for money. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have known somebody who just train wrecked their life in the pursuit of money? I've known a couple. I've known a couple who just every hour of every day is spent chasing the almighty dollar. Everything they did was for career advancement. Everything they did was in the office and for the growing of their business, and it just ruined their lives. Now, we don't have to be at that level to still have money be an idol in our heart. And Moses serves an example of what it looks like to say, you know what? The earth and its treasures, all of it's going to pass away. I'm going to go experience the reproach of being with Christ, of being with his people because there's a greater reward coming later, an eternal reward, one that doesn't pass away. Moses said no to the king as God. Verse 27 says he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's kind of a like, like parents, like son thing, isn't it? His parents disobeyed the king. Well, here Moses disobeys the king. He leaves. He says, I'm not going to follow what you say. I'm going I'm to follow what God says. You guys realize that the Pharaoh commanded was the greatest army in the known world? The Pharaoh's got horses and chariots and soldiers and people who will just uh, quite literally kill you at the snap of a finger. Moses said, I don't fear him. I'm not afraid of him. I fear God more than I fear man. Moses said no to the king as God. Moses said no. You're not sovereign. You're not ultimate. God is. How many of us struggle with the fear of man? What somebody else thinks of us? What somebody else says about us? How many of us struggle with fear of man, especially when it's somebody that we look up to and respect? I know that that's particularly true for me. Uh, I, I, can, I can, if somebody has an opinion about me, I can pretty easily brush it off. But it's, if it's somebody I look up to and respect says something about me, 
I'll be honest with you, I, I care far too much about that. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Anybody else know that, that feeling of caring what somebody else says about you? Moses said, I don't care what the king says about me. I don't care what the king can do to me. I'm gonna follow God. And he said no to, to temporary power so that he could sit under God's ultimate power. And the fourth thing is that we see that he said no to self-salvation. Self-salvation. Okay, what do I mean by this? In verse 28, it says that he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Okay, the people are in slavery and God has promised to rescue and to redeem them. And God has done a series of plagues against uh, the, the gods of Egypt. Each one of the plagues, by the way, is against a particular god of Egypt. It's very fascinating if you study it out. And God says, I'm going to give you ultimate salvation, ultimate deliverance. Now, you have to imagine at this point, there have been nine plagues. And the Pharaoh has even said, yes, you can go. And then he changed his mind. No, you can't go. Yes, you can be free. No, you can't be free. Do you think the people of Israel were frustrated? Do you think they were a little bit anxious? Do you think there might have been a temptation to want to take matters into their own hands? I don't, um, what's, they, they made a, a movie about, uh, about this. Is it Exodus, Gods and, Gods and Kings? Is that what it's called? And, and I remember in the movie, there was a scene where there was, people were talking about a political uprising. That's not necessarily in the Bible, but it seems like kind of a reasonable thing that, that people would be saying, hey, why don't we just take matters into our own hands? Why do we gotta, why do we gotta wait around? Then God says, no, I've got this plan. See, I'm gonna cause the death of the firstborn. But each one of you are going to take a lamb. You're going to kill it. And you're going to take the blood from that lamb and you're going to paint it on the doorposts. And every single firstborn son is going to die except for those who have painted the blood of the lamb over the door of their household. And I will pass over them and you will experience salvation. Now just imagine that you're one of the children of Israel. You're one of the people waiting now, years, waiting when will we get free? And God's plan is to ruin the lintel of our door with animal blood? Moses led the people, said, no, God's plan of salvation is better than anything we could come up with. And friends, this serves as the most beautiful picture of the gospel that we can see in the Old Testament because Jesus Christ is called the lamb who was slain that those of us who have his blood covering over us, we don't experience God's wrath. We don't experience God's judgment. We are passed over. We experience his grace. Friends, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll probably say it again every single week that I have the opportunity to. Our plan of salvation would be religion and works. Our plan of salvation would be, God, tell me what I need to do to be right with you. And God says, how about I do everything on your behalf? How about I give you my son as a sacrifice to pay for your sins that you might be saved? This picture of Moses is a picture of the gospel. Friends, we're to see ourselves as these children of Israel needing help, needing rescue, needing salvation. I am so glad that Moses said no to his own plan or to the people's plan of self-salvation. I am so glad that Jesus said no to uh, anything contrary to the Father's will, but he was faithful to the end and his blood was spilled that we might be saved. Anyone with me? And I'm thankful that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb is empty and he's alive forevermore. And we don't follow a dead religious founder, but we follow a risen savior.
So in the moment, we could be tempted to choose self-salvation, couldn't we? In fact, whenever we go into works mentality, we go into, I gotta earn God's love, I gotta earn God's favor, I've gotta earn God's forgiveness. We're doing this. We're choosing self-salvation. But friends, ours is to trust in Christ and him alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. He's, he's everything, my all in all. It's always fully focused on the person of Jesus. Moses said no to temporary pleasures, temporary wealth, temporary power, and temporary salvation, all to be associated with Christ and to receive a greater reward. That's very good news for us. Let's look at the people. Verse 29. Couple more to look at here. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, I find this verse humorous because the author of Hebrews, if you'll remember back a few chapters, he has not been particularly complimentary to the people of Israel, has he? In fact, he's had, he's had them be the whipping boy more often than not. Look how they were unfaithful. Look how they didn't remain faithful. Look how they worshiped idols. Look how they didn't follow God. And here, he gives them a nod of their one good action as they were leaving Egypt. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So the people of Israel have been dogged on quite a bit. Here he praises them. And just think about this, just as, as, a, as an example. The Red Sea, this big body of water, the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, tells us that, that God made the water stand up like walls on either side, and the people of Israel passed through on dry land. Now, I don't know about any of you, I would not have volunteered to go first, okay? Hmm, this is an unusual meteorological phenomenon I happen to see in front of me. Usually I go around water, but here I'm going to go through the water. You know, Jethro, you want to go first? I'll follow you. I'll be right behind you. Okay, who's going to go first? Who's going to walk first? The Bible says, by faith, the people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. That does take great faith. It takes great faith to trust in God to give you peace and safety. And as a matter of fact, think about coming through on the other side, waiting and watching when the Egyptians attempt to do the same thing, they're destroyed. The same pathway that salvation for one group is destruction for another. Uh, biblical commentator David De Silva writes this, walking between the two walls of water was an accomplishment of trust. Since the Hebrews placed their lives completely in the hands of God. Is that right? If this water comes crashing down, we're all hosed. They were Canadian Jews. Um, they said that. He says, they placed their lives completely in the hands of the God who held back the waters. Their absolute dependence on God's goodwill and favor was to them, to them was never as clearly expressed. The reward for their dependence was the destruction of the Egyptians by those same waters. The people of Israel said no to temporary safety right then and there so they could experience God's greater safety later on. How many of you like to feel safe? How many of you want to have 12 months financial reserve in your bank account? How many of you want to have seatbelt, the five-point harness, and a crash helmet in the car? How many of you want to, uh, you know, have the best security systems on your house? I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily wrong, but when it gets down into the heart level, and you trust in those things, you trust in your bank account for your security, 
You trust in your security system. You trust in all those things more than God. You're settling for something. You're trading something. And sometimes following God, is going to be a little bit risky. Sometimes following God, it might not make sense in the natural. People of Israel said no to temporary safety in order to gain the greater safety of God's salvation and ultimately in the promised land. Last one, the prostitute, Rahab. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Pause for a moment. The, the way that sentence reads is like the walls of Jericho had faith. And I kind of like that interpretation of it. Like the walls, even the walls had faith in God. Like, oh yes, you want us to fall down? We will fall down. Thank you. Boom, they did it. Um, it wasn't through any great action of the people. It was, it was God's word. It was God's command. Uh, commentator, scholar N.T. Wright says this. This was not, of course, a normal military assault Jericho could have withstood standard forms of attack, but this was an act of faith, a dramatized prayer for God to act, an act God did. You guys remember the story, right? What's the song Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? It's a little bit of a misnomer because all that they did was walk around the city for a few days and then they shouted and blew trumpets and the whole thing just fell flat. This is a very dramatic example of God once again showing up in power and saying, you guys, I got this, I got this. Pastor and author Ray Stebman says, this incident highlights God's ways of deliverance as being varied and often bizarre in the eyes of many. He is infinitely diverse in his solutions and we make a great mistake in trying to predict his actions. I love hearing surprising stories of God's deliverance. I love, I I know people, even in this church, who have experienced just varied miracles, various ways that God has just showed up in very unlikely ways situations. It's a beautiful picture of of God um, keeping us on our toes, not because he likes to mess with us, but because he wants us to trust in him. God doesn't give us a checklist and and a, a manual to follow. He gives us himself. And then Rahab, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab the prostitute you want to talk about an unlikely heroine of the story. So you guys remember there, before they fought the battle of Jericho, uh, Joshua, now leading the people at this time, sends the spies into the land. He says, I want you to go spy out the city of Jericho, find out where they're weak, find out what's going on. Well, the, the spies ended up lodging at Rahab's house. And, and they are lodging there because Rahab's house is the type of house where men would have been coming and going regularly. You guys get the picture? And the rulers, the government uh, in Jericho gets wind. Hey, there are some strange uh, men, men that we're not used to seeing, men that had come in, and I don't think they've left, and they start to ask around, well, what did Rahab do? She hid them. She took them up to the roof, she covered them and and hid them and actually lied to the soldiers that I don't know where they are. The soldiers, the spies then said, thank you so much for your kindness. Here's this red rope. I want you to hang it out of your window and when we come back to attack the city, we'll know to show you and your family kindness. So Rahab is this unlikely heroine of the story. She's unlikely for a few reasons. Number one, she's a woman. And in this day and age, very patriarchal, very male-dominated sorts of societies, when the author of of Exodus, when Moses zeroes in on on Rahab, sorry, in Joshua, the author of Joshua zeroes in on on Rahab's story, this is out of the ordinary. This is a woman being given an incredible place of, of prominence and prestige and respect. 
She's also unlikely because she's a foreigner. She does not belong to the people of God. She's a, she's a pagan, just going about her pagan ways. And all of a sudden, the people of God just show up in her house. And she's a prostitute. She is using her body, using her sexuality as a way to earn a living. This is an unlikely person to be focused in on as one of the heroes of the story. But you guys, that's what's so beautiful about God's grace. God's grace doesn't often make sense. She is a recipient of God's grace. She's a perfect picture of God's grace. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, you know, if you knew the things that I've done, if you knew the things that have been done to me, you wouldn't talk so much about God's grace and forgiveness. And I stand there and I say, no, it's not true at all. There's no one who's too far gone to receive the grace of God. God's grace can reach the most unlikely of people. God's grace can reach a prostitute. God's grace can reach the very prideful, self-sufficient businessman in a three-piece suit. I actually think the businessman's harder to reach because they don't realize that they need God's grace. I think, friends, many of us who live in suburbia, we've got garage, got food in the fridge, we've got Netflix, very often we don't realize our desperate need for God's grace. As an early church father, like way back, right after the time of Jesus in the 200s, Origen, one of the church fathers writing on this about how Rahab is a picture of God's grace. Our Jesus, Joshua, it's the same name, sent his spies to the king of Jericho. There they are welcomed by a harlot, but this harlot who received the spies sent by Jesus did so that she might no longer be a harlot. The soul of every one of us was that harlot when we lived in the desires and lusts of the flesh, but our souls received the messengers of Jesus, the angels whom he has sent before his face to prepare his ways. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. And it's, it's even more remarkable than that because the third thing we see about Rahab is that she ends up becoming not only a part of the people of God, but in the family line of the ultimate dynasty. She becomes the, the great-great-grandmother of King David. King David, like the King David. Oh yeah, and Jesus who's descended from King David, this, this prostitute, this Canaanite, this pagan, just hanging out, doing her thing. All of a sudden, the people of God show up in her house. They minister God's grace to her. She has faith in God. She believes in the promises of God. And she says yes to, to, to Jesus, ultimately. But she says yes to the promises of God. And she's saved. She receives God's grace. How beautiful is that, friends? Rahab, think about this. Rahab could have said, to the soldiers, yeah, I, I've heard about some guys who are maybe spying on the city. You know, what kind of reward is there? What kind of monetary reward is there going to be if, if for the you know, information that leads to the arrest and capture of these two fugitives? Is there a number I should text? What do I, you know, she could have had all of those sorts of questions. 
Think about it. As someone who is as a prostitute, she's, she's wanting money. She's needing money. She could have said yes to wealth. She could have said yes to prominence. She could have probably been given a, a good pat on the, on the back, a pat on the head, said, hey, thank you. You're the, the hero of Jericho. She says, no, I don't want that. I'm going to say no to this temporary pleasure and this temporary wealth because I believe that what God has for me later is greater. Rahab could have chosen the status quo, but she trusted God and received a greater reward, not only salvation, but an honored position as an ancestor of the Messiah. And you go read Matthew chapter one, so-and-so begat so-and-so, father begat son, father begat son, father begat son by Rahab. She's mentioned by name in Matthew chapter one in the lineage of Jesus as a woman, as a foreigner, and as a prostitute. You tell me God's grace isn't amazing. God's grace is so amazing. Friends, let me just close with this. We've seen these pictures, okay? We've seen these pictures of people saying no to things here and now, temporary pleasures, temporary power, temporary wealth for the sake of receiving the greater reward. For those of you who are already Christians, you have said yes to Jesus. You have Uh, You have been guaranteed the greater reward, but as you walk out your faith, what are the things today where you realize you're trading in the riches that God has for you for a temporary pleasure, temporary power, temporary security? What are the sins that so easily entangle you? What are the things that that seem so pleasurable to you right now, here and today, but you, you, you don't realize you're missing out on the greater reward that God has for you? I'm not going to be prescriptive. I'm not going to tell you what those things are. I want to let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. I want him to to bring those things into your heart and minds. I want you to have an opportunity to share those things with other Christians in your life, to talk about those things. But those of you who are here today who are not yet Christians, I want you to understand that there is an offer of, of infinite pleasure, infinite reward, and what you've experienced up to this point in life is all meant to point you to the greatest pleasure, and that is being loved and forgiven and saved and adopted by God through his son, Jesus. And there's a wide open invitation. Maybe, maybe you don't even know what that looks like, but you're, you're, you're resonating with what I'm saying. You know what? I have traded in something good that God wants for me for junk food. I've traded in a steak dinner for, you know, cold fries at the bottom of the bag underneath my car. You, you, it's, it's, it's even more than that. And I'm telling you today, there's an opportunity. You don't have to be verbose. You don't have to be eloquent. In a moment when we go into our time of response, you could simply just pray a prayer like, God, I am sorry for trading in the good things that you have for me for junk food. I want to receive your goodness. I want to receive Jesus. I want to receive his forgiveness by his death on the cross and his resurrection. You can pray the simplest thing. I've, I've said it before. My dad, when he came and preached here last year, he said his, his prayer when he became a Christian was, God, I've screwed up my life. If you want it, you can have it. And God, God took him up on the offer. For all of us, how is God calling us to respond? How is God calling us maybe to say no to something today so we can experience the greatest joy imaginable life with God in eternity? And so it's in line with that. I want to call us to a time of response. Now we're going to respond uh, as we do in a few different ways. We're going to respond first uh, through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor, please know you're not under any obligation to give. You're, you're welcome to if you'd like, but this is something for those of us to do who are part of this church family to support the work of the ministry, but most importantly, to give as an act of worship. 
This is an opportunity for us to say, my wealth, my treasure is not my greatest hope. I'm gonna give unto the Lord and and see uh, him bring greater treasure into my life. If you want information about how to give uh, online or or to text to give, that information's up on the screen. And while they're collecting the offering and then in a moment they'll begin passing out the elements for communion, I'll just invite you to hold on to those for a moment. Let me read some discussion questions, things for us to talk about in our community groups and in our homes this week. When you consider the lives of Moses, his parents, the people of Israel, and of Rahab, what stands out to you the most? And how is their example of faith encouraging to you? Number two, what promises are offered by the world that try to pull us away from our ultimate reward in Christ? How can we help one another remain focused on our true reward? Reward. Number three, what temporary things is God asking you to say no to now so you can experience his greater reward later? And then number four, how is Jesus the ultimate example of saying no to temporary pleasure, power, and wealth? And how does the gospel empower our faith? And a couple things to pray about because we really value being people of prayer. I hope uh, that you guys are taking time in your community groups and homes to pray over these things as well. Pray that God would keep us focused on our true, lasting, and eternal reward in Christ. And pray for those who are not yet Christians that God would give them the faith to believe that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And as they pass out the communion elements, uh, as I mentioned, just hold on to those for a moment. We'll take that all together in just a minute. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11 that explains what we're doing here. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Also, he took the cup after saying, uh, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you're someone who's not a Christian, uh, this, this celebration is for believers in Jesus. I would invite you to either abstain and reflect on what we're doing, or even better, give your sin to Jesus, trust in him, and join us at the table. As you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, it's, it's pretty meager, isn't it? This is not like some fancy meal that we're passing out. We didn't just, you know, give you uh, stuffed crepes or something delicious, right? This is bread and, and juice. But it serves as a picture of that ultimate reward that we have, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So today, you can even think of that as we've been talking about saying no to, to, to great pleasures right now so that we can experience that deeper reward in Jesus. Communion serves as a beautiful picture of that. We're also going to sing. Our musicians are going to lead us in a time of, of singing and, and responding to Jesus uh, through worship. And so I'll invite you to, as they begin to sing, to, to take communion when you're ready. Uh, if you want to spend a minute pausing, reflecting, praying, if you want to pray together with your spouse or your friends, or your community group, whoever you're with, and then as you're ready, stand and join with us as we sing. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that all of your promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you that you are a God of deep and immense joy, a God who created pleasure, a God who created um, even things like wealth and prosperity and security. But God, you have these things for us in ultimate measure. And I pray you would help us to not be 
seduced, as it were, by temporary things. God, that we would stay focused on the prize. We'd stay focused on the reward. God, would you use the examples of Moses and his parents and the people of Israel and of Rahab, would you use their example to inspire us? God, would you remind us of Jesus, our Savior, the one who laid down his life for us? Would you remind us of the gospel that we might stay faithful to you no matter what circumstances come our way? And I pray now that you'd empower us to worship and to respond to you from the depths of our heart. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen.